0: Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Pretty Polly pretty me. The stories about former child actor and tough-talking TV cop Robert Blake are insane. He was kicked out of the army for attempted murder and he was later charged with murder when his wife was found fatally shot in the head. He was accused of hiring two stuntmen to carry out the dirty deed. And depending on who you talk to, he was either rightfully acquitted or he managed to escape justice. On screen and off, Robert Blake was a tough customer. He talked like a mobster and lived like a cowboy. He partied with movie stars but was intimately familiar with the rougher side of life. And he made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Pete Steele, performing Pretty Polly in 1938. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Stephen Somers' The Mummy Returns. And why would I play you that specific slice of poorly rendered CGI cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one film in America on May 4th, 2001. And that was the day that Robert Blake's wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, was found shot to death in the front seat of Robert Blake's car. On this episode, child actors, hired assassins, CGI cheese, murder, and Robert Blake. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season nine, Hollywoodland. Friday night dinner rush was keeping the staff at Vitello's on their toes. The man at the maitre d' stand looked up, trying to hide his distress as the shop bell signaled another couple lining up for the seafood special. His worries disappeared when he saw who was at the door. The restaurant's owner would always make time for his favorite customer. Robert Blake had been coming to Vitello's, the little Italian spot just off the main drag in Studio City, for nearly 20 years. Some celebrities didn't want you to acknowledge their presence. They just wanted a quiet dinner like anyone else. it had been decades since he solved crimes every Tuesday night as the tough-talking Beretta, and much longer since his days as a little rascal. Blake appreciated a little fuss, something to show that, after all these years, his fans still loved him. He chatted amicably as the owner led him and his date to a booth. The owner was surprised when Blake introduced Bonnie Lee Bakeley as his new wife. The owner saw Blake like clockwork every week for as long as he could remember. Yet Blake never mentioned a wedding, let alone a bride. It was all new to him, Blake laughed. They'd only been married six months. Blake and Bonnie enjoyed their dinner and drinks, talking and laughing like any couple out on a date. Bonnie had the fish, and Blake had a dish of his own invention, tomato and spinach pasta. The restaurant had dubbed Fusili a la Robert Blake. They seemed smitten as they sipped their wine and listened to a piano player plink out some candlelit jazz, and the happy couple called it a night around 9.35pm. The owner waved goodbye. He told Blake that he was already looking forward to seeing him next week. Maybe a lie, but a little white one. He could see that Blake was lapping it up. But Robert Blake's next visit came much sooner than expected. Barely half an hour after leaving the restaurant, he burst through the front door sobbing with vomit caked on his shirt he shouted for somebody, anybody, to help him. Someone had shot his wife. But for weeks, Robert Blake had a sneaking suspicion that someone was after Bonnie. At least that's what he told the LAPD on the night of May 4th, 2001, as they examined his hands for gunshot residue. Funny enough, he explained, that was why he'd gone back into the restaurant in the first place. He thought he left his pistol there. He carried a handgun to protect Bonnie. And when they left the restaurant, they walked to their 1991 Dodge Stealth, which was parked on a side street. It wasn't until Blake reached for his keys that he realized the pistol was missing from his pocket. Damn it, he must have forgotten it at Vitello's. He told Bonnie to stay put, he'd be right back. When Blake returned, he found Bonnie slumped in her seat, practically non-responsive, and there was blood all over the headrest and a bullet hole behind her ear. Blake wrenched open the car door, and he grabbed Bonnie and began to shake her, she had to talk. She had to say something, anything to prove she was still with him. Blake shook her harder. She didn't respond. But he wasn't about to let her go. Robert Blake thought of himself as a bulldog. He'd scraped and scrambled and fought his way to get everything he'd ever gotten in this world. And this old mutt wasn't about to let any son of a bitch take something from him. He just needed help. He ran across the street and banged on the first door he could find. Sean Stanick, a filmmaker, opened up. Even in Blake's frantic state, Stanek recognized the actor. Blake could barely get a word out, but when he wasn't gasping for air between sobs, he was gagging, and there was already a small pile of vomit on the sidewalk, and Blake finally choked out an explanation. He dragged Stanek to the car to find Bonnie miraculously still breathing, and Blake ordered Stanek to call 911 and ran back to the restaurant for more help. But the bulldog couldn't stop time. When he returned from Vitello's with a nurse in tow, it was too late, and Bonnie Lee Blakely was gone. Or so went the story Robert Blake told the police. The bulldog seemed all alone, a widow while still a newlywed. But when he found the dirty rat who did this, there'd be hell to pay. The police officer could take that to the bank. Robert Blake had been acting his whole life since he first stepped foot on the MGM lot at age three. Though he wasn't exactly Paul Newman, he was fairly well-known. A diminutive Italian with a penchant for outcasts and antiheroes, He played cops and robbers, cowboys and killers. Still, he'd never played the role of a grieving husband before. And some folks weren't convinced by his performance. Like the LAPD, they heard Blake's same story from Sean Stanek. But when the cops talked to the diners back at Vitello's, they got a completely different angle. Did Blake come back for his gun? No, the owner said. Nobody there remembered Blake coming back until he flew through the door screaming for help. Besides, his table was bussed two minutes after he left the joint. If there was a gun, a busboy would have noticed. And then there was the way Blake acted when he came into Vitella's, covered in puke and Bonnie's blood. Now, he could have been in shock, the owner knew that, but something felt strange. Maybe it was how he demanded someone call 911 and then suddenly changed his mind. Or maybe it was the way in which he told them what happened. First he asked for a glass of water, and then he said his wife was hurt next he said she fell down then he said maybe she got mugged finally he got the words out bonnie was shot the officers at the scene could barely believe it themselves as they relayed all this back to headquarters who'd have thought a friday night patrol in the valley would turn into questioning beretta himself and they were ready to let the poor guy go to sleep after a long and traumatic night and that is until they got the order straight from the top the lead detective of lapd robbery homicide told a couple guys to go over to Robert Blake's house and wake him up if you have to, but make sure he's questioned thoroughly, and then search his house tonight. The lead detective hung up the phone. It had been seven years, but he'd seen this before. A wife, murdered in a quiet Los Angeles suburb, a strained relationship, and a celebrity husband at the center of it all. Failing to put OJ Simpson away had made the LAPD a laughingstock, and they weren't about to let Robert Blake do the same. out there and do something. Even at two years old, Mickey knew it meant trouble when his father's eyes got mean like that. You saw the old man give that look and you knew something awful was about to happen. Like when he decided one of the kids needed a lesson, and before you could blink, the old drunk started swaying. If he got lucky, it was only his fists. Or like when he locked you in the closet to think about what you'd done. You sat there for hours, waiting for the old man to sober up hopefully before dinner came and went. And Papa wouldn't do anything here on the street. Here they were supposed to be happy, or at least pretend they were happy to the nice people walking by. Wearing country clothes as fake as their smiles, the gubatosi kids were living out the dream. Not their dream, of course, their father's. The old man was done up like a down-home country preacher, which turned some heads in their New Jersey neighborhood. Mickey and his brother and sister were supposed to be the three little hillbillies dancing for the people as Papa accompanied them on guitar. By 1935, the depression had taken Old Man Gubitosi's job, and this was their only shot. Father had told them that, and their future lay in show business. But their shot wasn't going too well. Old Man Gubitosi was not exactly a compelling performer, or even a good one, and Mickey's two siblings weren't exactly electrifying the crowd. As his father shot him a nasty glare, two-year-old Mickey knew if he didn't act, there'd be hell to pay when they got home. So Mickey put one foot in front of the other and started to dance. He did the Charleston, he did the Jitterbug, he sang folk classics and popular jazz songs. He stood on his head, anything to get the attention of the people passing by and get his father off his back. To his surprise, it worked. People stopped to watch and they began to smile and then laugh and then clap along. And then something he never expected happened. A pretty woman in a fancy dress leaned forward and pressed a shiny new nickel into Mickey's tiny hand. At two years old, Mickey had already experienced a lot of pain in his short life. But from the moment that cold metal kissed his palm, a new feeling bloomed in his heart. Something he'd never found at home, from his siblings or from his parents. Here in front of an audience cheering him on, he finally felt love. Robert Blake's life started light years away from the Hollywood stars. Born Mickey Gubitosi in 1933, Robert had it hard from the start in his Nutley, New Jersey home. Even as young as two or three, he remembered his parents hating him. In his memoir, Blake recalled his father as an abusive alcoholic, a man who often found an excuse to beat his kids for the smallest transgression. But also, according to Blake, his father paled in comparison to his mother. She didn't scream and she didn't hit. She also didn't seem to care. Not once, Blake recalled, did he ever remember his mother offering one ounce of maternal affection. Decades later, a family member shed some light on Blake's childhood. Blake's mother wasn't in love with his father. It was his uncle she always pined for. Blake was the product of their affair. So to his father, he represented his mother's infidelity. And to his mother, he represented the life she'd never get to have with the man she actually loved but as a two-year-old little mickey Gubitosi didn't know any of that yet he just knew his father and mother didn't really seem to like him but where they were cold the audience was warm full of love for a little boy who just wanted someone to pay attention when the gubatosis moved to los angeles in 1938 five-year-old mickey found himself in the holy mecca for a budding entertainer like himself All he had to do was find his audience. Hollywood, it seemed, wasn't that different from the sidewalk in Nutley. Mickey and his family lined up outside MGM Studios where a stern-faced man was casting extras for our gang. They needed cute kids with comedic timing to work with the little rascals. And Mickey knew how to stand out. Just like back home, he started dancing and singing, anything to make the man stop and notice him. And just like that, he was on a Hollywood movie set. After a few days watching child actors deliver pratfalls and jokes for the cameras, Mickey thought he had his Hollywood thing figured out. He could see that the stars, Darla, Alfalfa, Buckwheat, Spanky, they were the ones with the really good gigs. For starters, they made a bundle. Meanwhile, Mickey's family was scraping by on the $2 a day he made as an extra. But the big players lived large in Mickey's three-year-old brain. Lunches from the canteen, fresh clean clothes without any patches, and all the candy they could buy. Even more than that, everybody paid attention to them. They had an audience wherever they went, from the studio executives on set to the screaming fans outside. To Mickey, it looked easy. All he had to do was talk. It wasn't long before he saw his chance. Confidentially, it stinks, the director said, kneeling down to a little blonde boy's level. The boy nodded and then said, Confidentially, it stinks. It had already been a long day on set, and everything had ground to a halt as the child actor struggled to say his lines, and the director was getting increasingly desperate. Confidentially, it stinks. Conferentially, it stinks. The director's face went red. He was ready to call up to try to get a line change approved, But when a tiny hand pulled on his trouser leg, he looked down to see an extra, five-year-old Mickey Gubitosi. As clear as a bell, Mickey said, confidentially, it stinks. Get that kid out of his costume and get Mickey into it, the director barked. Come on, we got a movie to shoot. Little Mickey Gubitosi's search for love had brought him to the heart of the entertainment industry. While it was his father's dream of acting that moved his family out west, it was Mickey's star that shone the brightest. He starred in the Hour Gang short films and then the Red Rider TV westerns. And no matter what his parents threw at him at home, he knew he could find the affection he was looking for the next day at work, on the soundstage. Young Mickey got better and better parts, and the studio execs started to take notice. He was an Italian, which meant he could be used for non-white roles. And this is back when studios were all too happy to shut minorities out of the pictures. No need to hire a Mexican performer or a Native American when they had an Italian with a tan just hanging around. But at the same time, Hollywood had a strange relationship to anything hinting at foreignness. Mickey would never forget the day that Louis B. Mayer brought him in to talk about his name Too ethnic, the MGM studio had said in his own thick Russian accent. Lose the gubatosi, he said. Now on, you'll be Bobby Blake. Robert Blake, the young actor, slowly built up his career. He starred in TV and film, often playing cowboys, mobsters, and cops. He worked consistently, but he couldn't quite break away from the pack. Blake thought his day had finally come when he starred in the excellent 1967 movie In Cold Blood based on Truman Capote's groundbreaking true crime nonfiction novel. But despite the praise, further offers weren't rolling in. He kept taking TV roles, which he considered to be selling out. Even winning an Emmy for his 1975 series, Beretta couldn't shake the feeling that the fame he deserved was passing him by. For decades, he worked with the best of the best. He made good money. He was a millionaire, for God's sake. Yet by the early 2000s, with 100 roles under his belt, Robert Blake couldn't help but feel like the recognition he deserved had eluded him. And that all changed the day Bonnie Lee Bakley was killed. What came knocking on his door in the hours of May 5th, 2001 wasn't fame, but infamy. And the LAPD were there with a warrant. They wanted to know some things. Like why Blake had parked on a dark street that night under a burned-out lamp when he normally used the valet. Why friends were reporting he and Bonnie were married in name only and why they found scrawled on his bathroom mirror the words, I'm not going down for this. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. All right, guys, how many of you are sports fans? How about fantasy sports fans? I want to tell you about PrizePix, the largest independently owned daily fantasy sports platform in North America. They are the easiest and they are the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. And now, I'm out of my other fantasy league, so daily fantasy sports are a godsend, okay? All you have to do is pick against the numbers. It's just you against the numbers. You're not playing against eight other teams who are well-versed in all the different fantasy stats, and you're not battling thousands of other players, including pros and including sharks. You just simply pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections, and you're in, it's that easy. So if you get got skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. And right now, PrizePix is bringing your gifts early this year with the 12 days of Pixmas. Starting December 14th, there will be a new promotion every day for new and existing customers. The daily promotions will range from payout boost to discounted projections. Phoenix Suns, Kevin Durant, only needs one point on Christmas day to make you a winner when placing an NBA entry, okay? You guys wanna get into this, get into the app right now. I'm looking in the app, I'm looking at the upcoming NBA games and I'm gonna select my man Jimmy Butler for more than 25.5 points against Chicago, Trey Young for more than 28.5 points against Denver, and Tim Hardaway Jr. for more than 16.5 points against Memphis. You guys get the idea, it's that easy, it's that fun. Go to prizepicks.com slash badlands and use code badlands for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash badlands and use code badlands for a first deposit match up to $100. Prizepicks.com, daily fantasy sports made easy. Robert Blake could barely keep his teeth from chattering in the winter air, but his hands were as steady as a surgeon's as he took aim through the truck window. If Gloria's father wanted to take his life, Blake was going to strike first. At 19, Robert Blake was all kinds of messed up. He'd grown out of his cute little kid looks and the rolls had dried up. Just when he was getting desperate, Uncle Sam had knocked at his door. And in 1950, Robert got shipped up to Alaska to serve his great country. But what service he was doing in this frozen ass end of the world, he didn't know. But none of it mattered when he met Gloria. She was a teenager living by the base with her father. Being around her was better than any adoring crowd in the world because she loved him for real. Blake was smitten. But Blake was 19 and Gloria was only 16. He bought her a ring with his army wages, wanting to make it legitimate. To Gloria's father, though, none of that mattered. Her father lost it at the thought of some army jughead messing with his little girl. He threatened Robert with a court-martial, wanted him charged with statutory rape, and worst of all, he refused to let Gloria anywhere near him. So Blake had to do something. He wasn't thinking straight, and more likely, wasn't thinking at all. And when he parked his car outside Gloria's house, made sure he had a clear sight line to the door of their trailer, 100 yards away, and he waited. The front door creaked open and Gloria's father stepped out into the freezing Alaskan night. He rubbed his hands together fished a set of keys from his coat pocket. Every muscle in Blake's body tensed. His hand had gone numb against the cold metal of the pistol. He dared not breathe, desperate not to alert Gloria's old man. He lined up the shot and Gloria's father fiddled with his keys. Blake had him right where he wanted him. Just a minute baby, just a minute and they'd be home free. And they'd never have to worry about anything coming between them again. Blake had his finger on the trigger when the front door of the house opened, his heart caught in his throat as Gloria, his beautiful Gloria, stepped out onto the path. He lowered the gun, watching intently as Gloria made her way to her father. She was giving him something, a thermos steaming in the frigid night air. Gloria leaned over and kissed her father on the cheek. Blake's anger, his determination, his will to kill, it melted away in a heartbeat. Gloria loved her father. He could never hurt her like that. Blake put the gun down and watched as Gloria's father drove off into the night. Robert Blake had been pushed to the edge plenty of times, by his parents and by his career, by the pressures of fame. Still, he'd never come this close to plunging over the edge. He was ready to kill that guy. And this time, he stopped himself. As for the next time, though, he couldn't know. Blake's little stunt outside Gloria's house got him quietly discharged from the army two months later. His superiors reasoned it was better to avoid a court-martial and all the scandal that went with it. But Blake's dark side would resurface several times throughout the years. On set, Blake had plenty of laughs, but he became notorious for his short fuse and raging temper. After marrying the actress Sandra Kerr in 1961, he often acted jealous and angry toward her. When their marriage finally fell apart 22 years later, she accused him of threatening to kill her. In one case, even allegedly holding a gun to her head. Blake had been through a lot for sure, but you couldn't throw a stone in Hollywood without hitting someone who could claim the same. And in 1999, his light and dark sides would come to a head when Bonnie Lee Bakeley came into his life. Bonnie flipped through the mail as she left the post office. The P.O. box hadn't been as full as she hoped. But there had been something good in here. Insurance bill, phone bill, a coupon for gardening services. Great, she could use it on her non-existent lawn. Another bill. And at the bottom of the pile was a small blue envelope with a handwritten return address. A greeting card, addressed to Lee Bakley. Finally, some good news. Back at the apartment, Bonnie ripped open the letter. Inside was a sympathy card, a generic basket full of flowers above cursive script writing, thinking of you. Inside. A short note in unsteady scrawl. Hi, Lonely in Louisville. I'm lonely too, it read. A little less now after getting your letter. Hope this helps with your nursing school tuition. Meet up soon. Bonnie barely spared the message a glance. Her focus was on the five crisp $10 bills folded inside. She counted them carefully and then grabbed her address book. The book contained page after page of names and addresses. Next to each name was a dollar amount. here, $40 there, sometimes a few hundred, and in tiny scrawl, painstaking notes. This one thought Bonnie was a divorced mother named Sarah Lee. That one loved phone sex. She dutifully logged her latest card, noting that this time she was Lee Bakley, nursing student. She had to be careful not to mix up her identities. She couldn't afford to. Like her future husband, Robert Blake, Bonnie Lee Bakley was always after the love of an audience. She dropped out of high school at 16 to become an actress and model. But when the roles she wanted weren't coming her way, she resolved to write her own. Bonnie took out ads in magazines, posing as a newly single young girl looking for companionship. Once she got a bite, she sent a letter to her new admirer with an elaborate story. She was a low-paid nursing student and just needed a spot of cash to get her gas for the week, or her husband had taken everything in the divorce. Could he loan her a few hundred to make rent that month? Bonnie's lonely heart scam soon expanded to include nude photos, many of which were not of her. She set up dates in exchange for money, and then left the man waiting at the restaurant. She kept notebooks filled with the various stories and aliases she gave her targets so as not to confuse her stories. At the same time, Bonnie was looking for love in real life. She married nine times and had several children. Her daughters adored her, even though they knew her type of business wasn't exactly above board even when she left them with her ex-husband to pursue famous men. Bonnie figured that if she couldn't become a celebrity, she'd do the next best thing, marry one. She kept lists of famous men in her notebook along with their net worths. She pursued Jerry Lee Lewis, then Dean Martin. By 1999, it was Christian Brando, Marlon Brando's son. But now, Christian was in a penal colony, charged with manslaughter for the death of his sister's boyfriend. With Christian in the clink, Bonnie was still looking for someone to fill her lonely nights. She knew she'd found it when she set sights on Robert Blake in a dark LA jazz club. It was love at first sight. Bonnie would make sure of it. In no time at all, Bonnie and Blake were involved. It was supposed to be a casual thing. But when Bonnie announced her pregnancy just months after they met, all notion of dating went out the door. One paternity test later, Blake discovered he was about to welcome a new daughter into the world. He figured he'd better do the right thing. And on November 19th, 2000, Bonnie Lee Bakley gained her 10th husband. And though it was sudden, it wasn't out of the ordinary for Robert Blake. After all, he'd do anything for love. And the only problem, he didn't love Bonnie. This kid didn't know how he'd gotten himself into this mess. This is why you didn't talk to the cops. One minute you're shooting the shit, trying to help them out, telling them about your buddy Robert Blake. Next minute you're on the stand and 12 pairs of eyes are burning a hole into your soul. You just had to keep it straight, tell him what he knew, at least what he thought he knew. That he used to work with Bobby Blake back in the 70s on Beretta. That Blake wanted some help with some things. That Blake started talking strange one night wondering aloud about how something bad might happen to Bonnie, and that Robert Blake offered him $10,000 to pop his wife. Robert Blake's trial for the murder of Bonnie Lee Bagley began on December 20th, 2004, over three years after Bonnie was shot while sitting in a parked car in Studio City. The prosecution had a simple narrative. Robert Blake, celebrated actor, hired a hitman to kill his wife. They argued that while Blake did love their infant daughter, Rosie, couldn't stand Bonnie. He felt used by her, like he was a piggy bank with a famous name. This tracked with what they knew about Blake and Bonnie's home life. Soon after becoming pregnant with Rosie, Bonnie moved into his Studio City home. But the newlyweds wouldn't even share a bed. Instead, Bonnie lived in the guest house out back. And even with Blake's millions, Bonnie didn't stop running her lonely heart scam. The day after her murder, a box arrived at the guest house full of letters and cash from her latest marks. According to the prosecution, Blake reached out to the two old friends, stuntmen that he knew from his cops and robbers days. Gary McLarty, AKA WizKid, and Ronald Hamilton, AKA Duffy. Both testified that Robert Blake asked them to, you know, take care of his wife, and they both refused. Blake's defense team had a different story. Sure, Robert and Bonnie weren't really in love, and they may not even have been in like, but Blake wouldn't kill her. It was true that Duffy and Wizkid, the two supposed hitmen, knew Blake, but it was also true that the two of them didn't have the most reliable memories. Wizkid struggled with addiction throughout 2000 and 2001. He once hallucinated 20 year men in his house, and Duffy needed help even worse. He was found a mile from the sun's house, crawling on his belly to avoid the people he believed were after him. Instead, the defense argued, that there were plenty of people who wanted to hurt Bonnie, like the men she'd scammed, for starters, or her ex, Christian Brando, who'd already done time for manslaughter. And there was no link between Blake and the murder weapon, a Walter PPK found in the nearby trash can. And with a lack of any real physical evidence, both camps used Bonnie's checkered past to argue their points, which was a bit unfair to Bonnie when you think about it. After all, she couldn't be there to defend herself. On March 16, 2005, nearly four years after Bonnie's murder, the jury shuffled into the courtroom, and they had their verdict. They found the defendant, Robert Blake, not guilty. Robert Blake walked away from the Studio City Courthouse a free man that day. The prosecution just didn't have enough to make the charges stick, and with no Bonnie there to tell them what happened, they had to let their killer go. Whether Blake was unscathed, that was another story. The years of legal fees had all but bankrupted him, and any money he had left went to Bonnie's family and children. In November 2005, a civil court did find him liable for Bonnie's wrongful death. But Robert Blake started his life with nothing in a Depression era household with little love for a little rascal. He thought he found what he was looking for, too, the first time someone stopped and paid attention to him on the sidewalk. And through a career of mountainous highs and terrible lows, the audience was there for him. But 78 years later, Robert Blake wound up right where we started. Broke, alone, and worst of all, ignored. Not in jail, but not entirely free. Flip on TV land and you'll catch a glimpse of something prophetic. The now 50-year-old opening to Beretta, complete with flashes of Robert Blake. And over it all, Sammy Davis Jr. singing, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. I'm Jake Brennan, and this, is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast, because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone. Shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.